Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Well, hello, welcome to OMD Daily. So today, uh, I didn't end up reading the the, what's that? the daily task of reading an annual report today. Um, much of my day was actually spent just working on all the podcast episode edits, getting the OMD Daily Podcast approved on iTunes, Spotify, all that jazz, submitting everything and all the admin stuff, you know, that just gets plowed into making a podcast work. And, you know, I'm not complaining. It's fun. It's fun stuff. You still learn and it's my second time doing it. So it's getting that muscle memory going. And one more thing is that uh, this is definitely very different from what I'm used to because when I would record accounted for or any time I, I guess accounted for it is a interview based podcast and so I really don't hear myself speak much most of the time I'm hearing the guest speak and so you know it would be a little weird just because I'll still hear my voice in the intro and I'll kind of try to skip past that because what I say isn't very important but now as I've been doing a lot of edits on the OMB daily podcast I'm hearing myself speak a lot and even though I'm kind of a year and a half into making podcasts I still am not used to it at all Um, I'm also hearing more about my own flaws in my speaking so that's something I'm being cognizant to work more on and so that's been a lot of learning on that personal front today not so much on the company front but I hope to deliver better podcast episodes going forward. I hope that I don't slur my words as much. I just never realized I did. So I'm trying to be better at enunciating my words. I'll try to improve over time. So today I think I'm going to talk about the two major interviews I watched today. As um, Actually, not two. Actually, there's three. So I'll share three of them. So the first one was the shorter one. So I watched the interview of Sam Zell, the real estate mogul known as the Grave Dancer. Uh, it was a May 5th, 2020 Bloomberg interview. Oh, that actually reminds me. As I'm recording this, it is May 14th, 2020. Forgot that. Um, but yeah, so watch that interview. I was just curious on what Sam Zell would be talking about just because he's just very so in tune with the... not only the North American, but even just the international real estate market. And I think a lot of what his company owns includes multifamily and residential property. So I was, really, I was just very curious on whether he is seeing rent payments come in or not, because I've been following a couple real estate investment trust companies. And I think I learned at least on the REITs that have retail slash commercial uh, tenants they were seeing something around a 70 to 80% rent collection rate, I think in March slash April. I think it might, actually it might be April. I can't hold me to that. I, 
my memory's a little rough, but overall, it's just kind of the overall perspe- perspective that, you know, it's not 100%, or at least like high 90s, like I would expect in, you know, the good times. So according to Sam, though, his business hasn't really changed much in terms of the rent collection aspect. And a good point that he brought up that I think intuitive, intuitively makes sense and is kind of still more of an aha for me was how he just has better tenants. And the you know example he used was if you have something like a grade C tenant, I'm assuming that's kind of lower income uh, compared to what I'm assuming grade A being the highest would be, you know, the typical white collar uh, people with great credit scores, people with a lot of savings, great jobs, uh, because I think a lot of the jobs that were lost are kind of blue collar jobs. So he brought up a good point in that, yeah, if you have a tenant mix that is predominantly people with very great jobs and when you own a residential portfolio it can still be relatively resilient and i think that kind of plays to the whole ethos of investing in companies too where in some ways like if you look at a company like ferrari they could actually be much more resilient and people might think oh spending is going to go down but spending for you know billionaires isn't gonna decrease because of a recession they don't have problem with money and that's kind of the case with Ferrari. I think I learned about how for the car company, they practically have this ongoing wait list. And so they're not really impacted by financial situations as much because to even get on the list, you have to be multi some kind of a billionaire. And not every billionaire millionaire gets to be on the list. It's an invite list and there's a set cap. And so there's a scarcity element for that company. And you can only get on the list if someone on the list, uh, I think, chooses not to buy the new coming Ferrari uh, car model. So it's one of those things where, you, you know, you, when you get to that point of wealth, you probably don't experience people saying no to you that often. And this is exactly the kind of situation where money alone just can't get you what you want. And so that scarcity is kind of just like that you know, Rolex element times like 10,000. So I think that kind of builds this resiliency when you have this super uh, strong customer base that just won't be impacted by most, you know, hardships. So that kind of made me think about that in terms of um, just customers in general, like what kind of customers do your companies have? And, you know, the another comparables like for ERP companies, like if you are an ERP company and most of your clients are small, medium businesses, they're probably going to die or not. I I digress. They're not going to die, but they're going to go through hardships and they're probably going to cancel their subscriptions and they might actually choose to find cheaper ERP solutions or do what a lot of, surprisingly, uh, small businesses do and just run their entire books on Excel. Like you'd be surprised. I've had friends who are big four auditors who go into audit uh, companies and they use Excel as to manage all their books. So Surprise, surprise, when times get tough, you can find ways to cut costs, even in the ERP side of things. But if you probably have really strong clients, like if, for example, you are a ERP provider to Google, Amazon, and Facebook, and all the big tech giants, you're probably doing pretty decent. And so I think that's also something to consider as well. Um, that's probably why companies like SAP and Oracle and Workday are kind of much more resilient than smaller ERP providers out there. And something else that I think what Sam Zell's talked about that reflects similar similarly to what Buffett per- talked about in the Berkshire Annual meeting as well was just this whole 
I think, uh, approach of being cautious. Like, I think there it's it's like what Stan Drunken Miller talked about before, where during the dot com uh, time period, like he had to hire a couple young guns because all the old guys were much more cautious about things. And I think this is, you know, it's kind of similar where a lot of the really experienced billionaire investors are very cautious, you know, Gunlax cautious, uh, Buffett's cautious, Howard Marks is always cautious, but I think he's still ca- very cautious once again here. And he's a distressed guy. So he, sometimes you'd think that he might be pretty excited here, but even he said there's not much opportunity out there at the moment because the feds kind of come in and played the market role and kind of made bankruptcies not so much of a thing, um, making it kind of a faux capitalism situation. But I think it's always good to hear from one more perspective on just being cautious about everything and also keeping in mind that the government's stimulus is not in perpetuity. It's going to end. The government can't constantly bail businesses out. And so the current stimulus package might actually only let companies sustain themselves for maybe six months or so, maybe a year. I don't know. Sometimes it might be enough for the full business. But I think what Zell talks about is that, yeah, there is kind of like delaying the inevitable of these companies that will probably go bankrupt. And when the companies kind of slowly fall off bit by bit, that's, I think, when we'll actually see the... uh, kind of the cascading effect. So not so much the V recovery, but kind of like a L-shaped recovery where we're kind of seeing this long trail of bankruptcies kind of popping up slowly, not just all at once. And I think that's what the stimulus package is uh, effectively doing. It's trying to limit the shock to the system so that we just kind of get bite-sized shocks. And that's something to, I think, be aware of and be cautious about. Um, I think... It's definitely got me thinking a little more about how much cash I want to hold in this current environment. Like we've had a bit of a recovery. And I think as I'm recording today, I think, you know, I think the market has gone down a bit. I'm not really up to date daily on it. But I think just on my uh, Apple News notifications, it seems that the market's kind of been on on a little bit of a slide for sure. So that's kind of what I took away from the Sam Zell interview. A good chunk of my day was listening to the lecture by Monish Pobrai and Francis Chu at Harvard. This was a Q&A episode. I think this was recorded sometime in April of 2020, so it's still quite a recent one. It's a nice long two-hour interview, and you rarely hear um, Francis Chu talk about investing. Like I, I think I've usually read articles of Francis and... This was the first one where I actually got to listen in a lecture or kind of more of a Q&A. So this was pretty cool. It was on uh, Monish's YouTube channel. So that was awesome for him, of him to share that. So I'll kind of go over, I think, the big topics that I felt were pretty insightful for me personally. One particular one was on being a very harsh judge of people. So apparently when Monish had dinner with Buffett, he talked about how or Munish asked Buffett whether he was a good judge of character, how he was such a good judge of character, because Buffett had all these great managers and, you know, a partner and Charlie Munger around with him. And Buffett actually corrected Munish and said he's a pretty poor judge of character and gave a, 
example that if there were 100 people in the room, he would only be able to say four of the 100 are probably great people and maybe four, the other four out of the 100 would be, you know, not so good, like terrible people. And then he wouldn't really know what to do with the other 92. He wouldn't be able to kind of decipher that. And the way he kind of phrased it was he just focuses on the four that he knows are going to be great people. And he doesn't waste his time trying to decipher the range of quality of the 92 because life is kind of too short to focus on all the people out there. And it coincides with Charlie Munger's advice that there's plenty of nice people out in the world, so you, you best be selective. And it's kind of the, one can say pragmatic and rational approach, and some might say, oh, it's a little, it could be a little insensitive, but it's honestly just the way of culling your network and only keeping people you think are the best around you. Um, it, and it doesn't have to be like the smartest or the wealthiest. What I'm saying is just the best kind of people, people with integrity, people who will make you a better person. And everyone has their own definition of that, but it was pretty fascinating to hear um, Monish share that advice he got from Buffett. And it referenced pretty well to the initial part of the conversation that Francis and Monish had where Monish previously, I think he publicly talked about how he had attempted to buy an insurance company to mimic Berkshire. And I think that company was called uh, Stone Trust Insurance Company. It's called Stone Trust something and Stone Trust Corporation or Stone Trust Insurance Corp. Anyhow, he bought it and it didn't go the way he had intended. And he admitted, I think, in the investors podcast before that it was a mistake what I didn't know was that he sold it to Francis <laughs> and I thought that was weird. And so they kind of talk about that experience where Monish is trying to convince Francis, who's his friend, to tell him that, no, like I'm selling this business. I don't want to sell it to you. I'm selling it because I've made a mistake. And Francis convinced Monish that, no, like I think I can run it. I, I think I can run it well. And apparently the whole deal happened within 48 hours and Francis didn't even speak to management of the insurance company. Francis didn't even, even visit the company until four months after the transaction. And he just completely trusted uh, what Monish was telling him. And everything that Monish said to Francis was accurate. And it was kind of a literal example of how you want to surround yourself with people that you trust and that you believe to have high integrity so that when the time comes, like you, you can just completely trust the person and you just know that everything will be done right. So I thought that was a awesome uh, literal example where you're like, okay, yeah, you, you know, the chef is eating his own cooking in that sense. And something else I learned about Francis too is that I know he's a private person because there's not much I think. Excuse me, there's not a lot of public information out there about what he does. But he also kind of confirmed that by saying that yeah, he's never apparently like marketed his fund before, and so his investor base is purely filled with people who gravitate towards him because of his investment style. He only has one employee. And this was kind of on the question of how his investors were reacting based on his last you know, four or five years of relatively, uh, I'd say, weak, poor performance. Um, people can say like value as a group has done poorly, and so that might be why. But Francis has been very uh, honest in that he's made mistakes. And I think that's been pretty refreshing to hear, to kind of see him sigh through his investing mistakes that he's made from like the 30 odd years of his investing career and something else that was pretty cool was how he runs a separate bond fund and apparently the bond fund did 
really poorly. And so what he did was he actually returned the fees he received from his investors from the last three years or so as kind of a punishment to himself for being such a poor performer. So I thought that was extremely admirable. Like he uses a mutual fund uh, structure. So he's just getting fees on um, asset under management, like typical mutual funds. But I I found that to be super admirable. And yeah, I think that just kind of gave me some huge respect points for him. Um, And it's just someone that I want to continue to follow. And I've been aware that uh, Fubrai has been shifting his investment style over time. Like he, I think, was the traditional Graham-style investor, who the Ben Graham-style investor, where you're kind of looking for cigar butts. And he describes it as, you know, he's looking to buy a pie for 50 cents or 50% of the pie. Um, or sorry, the, way, the better way to put it is, if there is a pie, he wants to buy it at 50% of it. And he's just expecting the whole pie to get full over time, which is, you know, the typical Ben Graham style where you buy it at a discount. And once that full value is realized, you sell it. And he's been talking about how over time now, finally, he's evolved to look for, you know, great businesses, but that are not obvious because the obvious great businesses that have an expanding pie are, you know, Google, Salesforce, Amazon, the world knows about them. And he believes that, He's got to look for hidden moat companies, companies that have deep moats, but that are just not obvious, but they're still expanding and they have the capacity to grow. They have the capacity to reinvest and have growth in itself. And it was pretty cool to hear how Francis and Munich were both very traditional value or like deep value oriented investors developing and I think evolving their style of investing where they've kind of learned that, yeah, it's choosing to go for an investment just so it could be a 5x, you know, five bagger is kind of a losing proposition when you have an option of choosing a business that can be a 10x, 20x. And so now they're kind of both focusing on that. But they also admit that they do have a deep value bias that kind of limits them. And so it's pretty cool to hear how they're kind of very open to admitting their own biases and how kind of they have these weaknesses. Um what else was a big takeaway? Just on, I think, current market conditions, when asked by one of the students on just this current COVID era market, Parai talks about how he believes that the 0809 levels in regards to business valuation was way more attractive compared to now. Like, he still finds ideas now, but it's not like 08 and 09 when he would just buy baskets of companies and they would just all become multi-baggers. And so that's pretty interesting here, once again, kind of quoting what um, Sam Zell voiced, there still is kind of concern on the overall market and, you know, plenty of opportunity for things to go further down south. And we can't forget that the back to normal isn't a normal, Uh, you know, the market valuation has been continuously going up for the last few years. And so people can say that, oh yeah, it's been a, it's already been a pretty overvalued market. So we could still be overvalued, even with the drops. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, but in something where Fabri went a little deeper into why his uh, foray into insurance didn't work uh, was when he kind of provided more information in regards to how Berkshire is treated by the insurance regulators. So and yeah, I think that's something I'd never really thought about where I was thinking, yeah, how can Berkshire get away with all this where most of the times when you have an insurance company, 
the regulators want the float to and the capital and insurance company to be really invested in really uh you know risk risk-free very safe investments you know usually fixed income and so maybe you'll get something like five percent of your float allowed to be invested in equities and Berkshire though doesn't have that case and Brian was explaining how there's a lot of factors that contribute to that like Berkshire has no restrictions because first of all they have a triple a rated insurance company but also what uh, Buffett really did is he kind of put in a railroad company uh, what I'm assuming it's he's referring to is Burlington Northern into the insurance company so the railroad is essentially treated as a fixed income bond um, by the regulators. And so it's kind of this $30 billion bond investment that sits there that gives this continuous 10% return. Um, and so that's kind of, that allows and that frees up Berkshire to invest the rest of the float into equities, which I found to be quite a unique situation that many insurance companies would be very heartfelt to uh, replicate. And that could also explain why Pabras had a very hard time um, investing uh, the way that he wanted to through, through like the Berkshire model. And on that note, of, I think I previously talked about how there was a style drift or kind of evolution for Francis and Pabras from going from deep value to kind of more, uh, I'd say, stronger companies. I learned that Francis Chu actually owns uh, Apple and Google. So I thought that was pretty fascinating to see someone who's always been very kind of the typical Prem Watsa style, like deep value kind of investor, evolving his style in that way as well. Um, and something else that I think was very valuable is how, so in Munich Pabrai's book, The Dando Investor, he references the Kelly criterion, which is very commonly used in, I think, poker and blackjack to make bet sizes. And he referenced that for making bet sizes for equities. And I think... Yeah, that's something I didn't really understand before. And Pabrai actually admitted that this was an error in his book. And he said that's something he would take out now because, yeah, like the Kelly criterion won't work if you can't place an infinite amount of bets. Because in stock investing, you practically sometimes only get one shot at that particular price at that point in the business's life cycle. Because the business continuously evolves and the price of the business will evolve as well. And so even if the same price comes in the future, it necessarily won't be the same business. So you can't really replicate these betting situations over time. And so that was something he noted as being a mistake from the past. And in when he was followed up on, oh, so then how would you approach diversification? Um, he talked about how he would ideally have 8 to 10 bets with a maximum bet size of 10%. And I'm assuming this is like the cost base, not so much um, the actual fair market value of the asset because I think he'll let it really run um, to like a really high price yeah and so that's kind of all the the stuff that I took out from the interview I think the overall interview is awesome I might rewatch it again sometime in the near future um, oh actually there's one more thing I wanted to cover that I thought was quite valuable so Pubrai is very famous for having his uh, checklist this investment checklist and he said he wouldn't share what the actual checklist was because it's proprietary. However, he said the focus of the checklist is to tackle three major areas where the investors that he studied and himself experienced made the most frequent mistakes. And the three elements were leverage, quality of management, and moat. And in regards to leverage, the big lesson overall was that you typically want to invest in a business that doesn't have to use leverage, which is fair and simple. 
Um, leverage tends to get companies in trouble and it can be used strategically uh, well, but you typically want to have a business that just doesn't need it. And the second part, quality of management, just, you know, capable management with integrity. And I personally think there's actually many cases where poor management can actually destroy um, a strong business because I don't think moats are, at least nowadays, as, um, I think, everlasting. I think they continuously either shrink or grow. And poor management can actually do an awesome job in shrinking the moat. And yeah, maybe the moat doesn't disappear, but I think it can be uh, impaired enough to make a material difference to the business's long-term success. And that leads to the third point where Uri talked about uh, um, the checklist does focus on the moat factor where you misidentify the moat um, and it just isn't as strong as you think it is or sometimes you just miss it. And it's kind of one of those emerging moats where it's doesn't appear to be an obvious mode in the beginning, but it over time becomes extremely strong. So yeah, those were the key takeaways. I thought this was a super cool interview and definitely learned a lot. Um, and another interview that, yeah, I think today was kind of the day of interviews. You know, I, I love listening to interviews when I do all my home workouts, but sometimes like, I guess like I kind of make the decision where yeah, I didn't think I'd have enough time to kind of dig deep into an annual report, but two-hour interview while I was eating, I thought, all right, let's do that. And so at 1.5 speed, it kind of works out. Um, but anyhow, another interview I wanted to share was just Michael Lewis's interview with um, Tim Ferriss on his podcast. And I never really learned much about Michael Lewis's career other than through his books. Like I knew he worked at Solomon Brothers just because of the fact that he wrote Liar's Poker. But what I didn't know was that when he wanted to start out as a writer... He actually studied at Princeton, and his one of his writing professors recommend told him that he shouldn't try to make a career as a writer. And apparently, Mike Lewis was a uh, art history major, and he wanted to write, become like a career writer, doing art history stuff. But lo and behold, he eventually went to work in Solomon Brothers, and the I think it was a fixed income bond department. That's how he ended up writing about Liars Poker, and. While all this was happening, he also submitted writing pieces for The Economist. And another cool thing I learned was that he actually got interviewed by Matt Ridley, the interview, the writer for The Rational Optimist and um, Genome. Uh, the Human Genome, I think, is the book. And that was pretty cool. Apparently, Matt Ridley was the chief science editor at that point at The Economist. And so I just thought it was just kind of an awesome coincidence where I just happened to be reading... Um, Ridley's book right now like on a daily basis and I'm hearing that he interviewed Michael Lewis and it's just kind of this weird interconnection out there really it's kind of a small world in very weird ways um, I also didn't know that uh, Michael Lewis took a I think he took or he yeah, he took the $250,000 bonus from Solomon Brothers and left to write a book which was Lars Poker for $40,000 advance and apparently his bosses tried to persuade him thought he was crazy to leave such a high paying job his own father told him to wait and make a couple million and have it in the bank before writing a book and Michael just kind of ignored all that and decided nope I'm just going to quit this high paying job and go be a writer and he just had this 
all throughout the interview, I got this huge sense that he had this certainty that he just wanted to be a writer. And in one way, I do truly admire that. And I, yeah, it's just, I wonder what that must feel like. I wonder if what I feel about just investing and just learning stuff about people and companies is reflective of that. Might be just because, you know, I kind of took a leap on this journey and haven't gone back to like a corporate world yet but it's been pretty cool to hear that part of his journey just like the early part where I just never really thought about actually digging into and I also learned that Michael Lewis's uh, podcast um, Against the Rules is actually produced by Pushkin Industries which is a media company that uh, Malcolm Gladwell is a co-founder of with um, I'm going to put his name Jacob Weiss Weisenberg, Weisberg. I'm sorry, Jacob, if you're listening. Um, but yeah, I, that, I thought that was pretty cool. I had no idea that Malcolm Gladwell actually started a uh, podcasting business. And, you know, I just knew that he had his own podcast. And I guess it's kind of the evolution of everyone. It's just really cool to see how people I've been following and admiring for a while are also developing and evolving their careers. And it gives me more uh, hope and I guess in a way that continuously inspires me to find ways to build a career that it's just not obvious, a career that I can imagine and dream about that might not appear realistic or uh, rational to other people, but something that makes sense for me. So overall, it was an awesome day of just constant learning. Um, I hope to actually tomorrow morning is the Morningstar annual meeting. So I'm hoping to take part in that and learn more about the company. So that'll be a pretty awesome time. And yeah, so I hope this was all valuable and I hope to bring you more fun, interesting learnings every day. Take care.